Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to be launching this series. I should probably warn you that it might well be more than nine artworks. I think some of our speakers are not going to be able to resist talking about more than one each. Um, and uh, I certainly will be talking about more than one in the next 40 minutes, 45 minutes or so. Um, but, uh, but I suppose in a way you can think about this as a series of case studies, even if some of the, of the lectures do deal with more than one artwork. Um, each of them in a way is just a, a small piece of an incredibly complex tapestry of visual artefacts that are woven through uh, the city and the city's life and the city's spaces. Um, and by looking at the selected ones that our different speakers uh, have chosen to share with you, um, I hope that will encourage you to look even beyond that and actually to make your own field trips, go and see these things uh, wherever possible um, in the flesh, in, the ma- in their material reality, in their material locations. Um, all of them will be accessible to you. So as well as these lecture halls, if you're here in person or if you're watching uh, one of the recordings, uh, do build into your AKC experience this term the opportunity to go and visit some of these and look at them yourselves directly. I want, though, just to, first of all, and this, in a way, this opening lecture is, is to give you some framing ideas that I hope will be useful for the whole of the, of the semester. So to think about some of the big sort of top-line questions, the meta-questions um, that will help you then think about the particular places, the particular artworks, and the particular religious traditions uh, that each week we'll introduce you to. And uh, there are two sort of meta-questions, in a way, that I want to float right here at the beginning. Um, and... They're raised in a sharp way by two, two uh, visual examples I'm going to show you. This is the first of them, the High Line in New York. Just out of interest, put your hands up if you've ever been to the High Line. A few of you, I saw a couple of people nodding in recognition of it. So this is a former, I think, goods railway track built, as it were, above street level uh, in New York and in Manhattan, um, which uh, has been recreated as a shared uh, space for, uh, for the people of the city and for its visitors to gather, to relax, to inter- interact with each other. It's been planted, as you can see, it's been greened, um, and it's a, a wonderful shared public space, which in a sense, it has works of art built into it that, you know, at various points around it. But in a sense, you could think of the whole thing as a kind of work of art that is at the same time a public space. Um, there it is at night. Um, and then alongside that, something I saw in a church in Venice a few years ago, 2015, um, during the Venice Biennale, which is one of the greatest art fairs uh, in the world. It happens every two years, as its name suggests. And this wasn't one of the official pavilions at the Biennale. It was just a church. Um, and lots of the churches in Venice sort of uh, jump on the, on the coattails of the Biennale and have artworks in them um, that provoke uh, questions or that sort of draw people in and, um, uh, and this was one of them that I was walking past, I saw the doors were open and I went in and uh, the artist collective who uh, 
had been invited by this particular parish church to do work within the building, um, were making a, a, a wry comment, if you like, on what it is, I suppose, that we worship these days. So in the place of murals or friezes of saints doing the work of God, they had um, images of uh, people still dressed, as it were, in the traditional costume of the saints that you would see in a Renaissance work of art, but building, putting up radio antennae and satellite dishes and, and um, embodying, if you like, the new religion of mutual communication. And, of course, in the place of uh, the cross that you might find on the altar, they placed the huge Facebook F. So these, both of these, the High Line, as it were, as a kind of success story, and the exhibition in this Venice church, St. Antonin, uh, as a sort of wry comment on uh, the nature of sacred space and what, what constitutes uh, meeting space for us moderns and how the tentacles of commerce seem to reach everywhere, um, raise some, some interesting questions about um, whether there are any spaces now that are not, as it were, fundamentally uh, commercially dictated to. Um, and often literally owned um, as, as it were, commercial spaces. A few years ago, Simon Jenkins, the British journalist, uh, wrote um, in uh, the London, in the Evening Standard, holding out the horrible prospect of following the logic of commercial sponsorship to its conclusion in London. Why not, he said, why not have Barclays Boulevard and Andrex Avenue? Why not sponsor bridges? Unless, and this is him, unless someone believes in, articulates, and then enforces some idea of visual dignity, London's public spaces will always be vulnerable to another salami slice. Someone will be out to make some money here or there. Someone will secure a precedent and drive a wedge into every opening. Objecting to one tacky sponsorship, one prominent billboard, one coloured taxi can seem prissy and nimbyish. There are always a hundred voices crying money for every one that cries ugly. And this raises the question of what is public space and secondly, what should it look like? So those are two big questions to carry with you. What is public space? And maybe a subdivision of that is what, what are religious spaces when we think about that? What sort of spaces are they? Um, and what should these spaces look like? In the later part of this lecture, I'm going to home in, in particular, on religious spaces as one kind of shared space, and particularly because I'm a Christian theologian and an Anglican priest, um, I'm going to look at ecclesiastical spaces, but the lecture series as a whole is going to look at a variety of different religious or sacred buildings. And... Uh, in the later part of today, I'm going to look at a, a small set of case studies for how contemporary art, contemporary visual art, is playing a part in how they, in how they look. What, and I want you to ask, what is appropriate to them, visually speaking? What do new artistic commissions say about the spaces that they're made for? What messages do they send? And what do they make possible for those who gather in or pass through those spaces. But let's first return to that bigger question, what is public space? And the, I, I offer the high line as, as one example, a space, if you like, of leisure, where people can gather for free 
um, in order to mix, to mingle, to enjoy themselves and to relate to the city uh, around them from, from within that space. But not all public or shared spaces are spaces of leisure. Uh, this is a picture of the old Spitalfields fruit and veg market in London, which used to be, as its name suggests, in the east end of London, in Spitalfields, near um, uh, Brick Lane and that, that area of the east end. Um, and, of course, it had a commercial element to it, but this was a place where ordinary tradespeople, market stall holders, or people with shops elsewhere in the city could come and sell their wares, sell their fruit and veg. So in that sense, it was a shared space. It wasn't, as it were, um, owned and managed entirely by one big corporate interest. It was a place where many people could come and, um, and as it were, set up stall and offer something and trade with one another. Like a lot of the great ancient markets of London, Smithfield for meat and um, Leathergate and so on, there are a whole range of, of markets most of which have either now been pushed out to the perimeter, as is also true of Spitalfields Fruit and Veg Market, or have closed down altogether. Um, whilst it was still in its East End location um, up until the 1980s, uh, you can see that a lot of the traditions of uh, exchange and interchange and um, communality, common life, uh, continued. And I like this photograph because it shows them playing Monopoly which in a sense is a kind of anticipation of some of the problems of, uh, of sort of commercial takeovers and, and, um, and the pressure towards big corporate possession of these shared spaces that did in fact mark the demise of Spitalfields Market. So when the market was moved out to where it now is, which is uh, near Canary Wharf, this site became of prime interest to the big city developers who were just, who'd always been looking at it enviously from the square mile, um, and it's only just on the very edge of the square mile. And, um, and there was a huge campaign to protect Spitalfields Market. Uh, its acronym was SMUT, Spitalfields Market Under Threat. And lots of local people, including many, many religious people, uh, took to the streets and marched in order to try and save it as a public space. Um, in fact, um, they, were, they were unsuccessful, um, there are parts of it that still operate as a market, but the much smaller footprint now is uh, a space, is a market space. Um, uh, and they're mainly sort of antiques and clothes and things like that. Um, but large parts of it were developed as office blocks. And so, in other words, they became corporate, they became possessed by uh, big landowners and developers and lost that community, that embeddedness, if you like, in shared community life. So, Monopoly had its way with Spitalf old, the old Spitalfields market. And that's very much in line with what Simon Jenkins in his article was saying, that every little opening will very easily in a place like London find a wedge driven into it, driving out, as it were, the shared community possession and replacing it with uh, corporate ownership. Here's another example that never actually came off. The pinnacle uh, was um, an ambitious development for another very high-rise building in the city of London. You can see there uh, Threadneedle Street. Um, it was going to be one of the largest uh, new buildings in the city. And what I found very interesting is that some of the early design statements for this building chose explicitly to make religious references uh, in order to make the case for 
um, the aesthetic merits and, and symbolism, I guess, in some ways, of this building. That's what it would have looked like, the pinnacle, had it been built. Um, and the designers behind it, the architectural designers, um, drew a parallel between the sort of what looked like the sort of folds of this building. It's like a folded garment hanging down to the floor. And the folds in a very famous painting by the Italian Renaissance artist Piero della Francesca, who did this image, this famous fresco of the Madonna della Misericordia, which means literally the, the Madonna of Mercy. And one of the kind of classic pieces of uh, Christian iconography of the Virgin Mary is exactly this sort of image of the Virgin spreading out her cloak in order to protect and gather those who are most in need beneath, beneath it. It's a sheltering, nurturing image. And in some cases, whether in sculpture or in painting, you see her gathering an entire city or representatives of an entire city within the protection of her cloak. And you don't need to think for long about that meaning, that iconographic meaning of the traditional Virgin of Mercy and what this super commercial building represented to realize the irony of, as it were, appealing to her in order to justify um, the, the, the proposed building. Because here is ruthless capitalist ambition uh, dressing in the borrowed garments, if you like, of the Virgin Mary um, and parodying, even if unintentionally, parodying the way that historically she spread her cloak wide in protection of the vulnerable, of those under her patronage. Um, this, if you like, is a story of two different kinds of debt. The debt that the sinners who gather under her cloak feel that they have, forgive us our, forgive us our debts in one translation of the Lord's Prayer, as we forgive those of others, um, here appealing for her to intercede for them to Christ and to deliver forgiveness of their debts. Uh, and yet, in the architectural design, a building, um, one of whose main interests is in capitalizing precisely on debt rather than forgiving it. Imagine a capitalist economic system that simply forgave debt. It's unthinkable. So I hope you get some of the irony of that, but also the way in which the, the visuals of a city, even a very contemporary high-rise city, um, can, in many ways, encode... Uh, inherited religious iconography, uh, even if they, as here, parody it. Some of you may know, but it's very interesting to be reminded, if you don't, that there are still, and this is maybe sort of on the more positive side, as the developers and planners dream their dreams about what they could achieve uh, in terms of leaving their, their mark on the London skyline, that there are still, mercifully, many uh, re regulations and restrictions that mean that you have to be very careful about how you build around St. Paul's Cathedral. There's something called St. Paul's Heights, um, which is a set of uh, regulations introduced in the 1930s by the City of London Corporation that protect and enhance important views of the cathedral from various other points around London. And so, yeah, there are limits still to how the, the city's own... Um, uh, the city's, as it were, uh, aesthetic, the, how the city presents itself aesthetically and what part religious buildings play in that um, presentation. So there, is, there are some checks and balances on the pressure to, uh, 
privatise and to enclose everything or to commercialise everything. But there needs to be a sort of perpetual vigilance, I suppose, in ensuring that that continues to be the case. I won't spend long on this, but um, these are some examples of areas within London that have represented um, pockets, if you like, of relative independence um, in the face of some of the dominant authorities and regulations of the city as a whole. They're often called liberties, and historically the liberties of London, and there are liberties all over the United Kingdom. They're not specific only to London, but there are a larger number in London than anywhere else for obvious reasons. It's a bigger city. Um, they were places which, for historical reasons, retained certain degree of self-government and freedom to organise themselves as communities in their own right. And the liberties are a, a reminder that the city has always had a certain kind of um, ebullient resistance to complete homogenization, to the kind of, uh, to the kind of uh, dystopian vision that Simon Jenkins conjures up, in which everything is sponsored, everything commercially owned. And part of what I think I want to suggest in today's lecture is that religious spaces, a bit like these liberties, have an inherited historical power of resistance, um, and an ongoing and lively one as well, to uh, continue to create spaces that offer an alternative account of what the city is and what the land, as it were, that we, in, that we move across every day and that we share with each other as we live in London, um, what that land stands for and means. Is it all, in fact, owned by someone? Or is there a sense in which all of us, even if we're buying and selling property, we're all of us, in some other sense, uh, merely passing through? merely guests, if you like, in a city that precedes us by centuries and will, God willing, succeed, go on um, afterwards for centuries. There's a sense in which we're all on borrowed ground, to echo the lyrics of a song uh, that the pop group Madness wrote in 2009 or 10, whose title is The Liberty of Norton Folgate. They were inspired by one of these liberties that you can see there in the top right, not the very top right, but nearly, um, uh, to write a song all about London as a place which is defined in the song as borrowed ground. Everyone, in one of their key images, everyone wears a second-hand coat if they live in the city. They're all inheritors of what's gone before and in some sense likely to be passing it on to others. It's never a place you can entirely own. And in that sense, it remains always common ground um, uh, even though it often doesn't look like it. And potentially a place of religious encounter. Um, and many artists and poets over the centuries have imagined London as a place in which we as mere passers-through are also in some sense always uh, at risk of or liable to be encountering a claim on us that may even be a divine claim. So the contemporary British art artist Roger Wagner um, uh, often paints the city, uh, here you can see Battersea Power Station in the background, uh, as, the site of, um, as the site of episodes from biblical narratives that he, as it were, uh, he reimagines in the context of the modern city. He, he's actually, in that sense, in a tradition that goes back to uh, the the English painter Stanley Spencer, who was painting in the early, early, the first half of the 20th century mainly, who painted lots of biblical scenes in his small village in Berkshire uh, 
called Cookham, where he was born and lived for nearly all of his life. He imagined the, the, the miracle scenes and the scenes of Jesus' crucifixion and, um, uh, and resurrection all happening in his little village. Roger Wagner does something similar, but with the city. Poets, like the Victorian poet Francis Thompson, have done something very similar, imagining uh, Jacob's ladder, which is something, of, uh, a sort of vision of, of God that, uh, that the uh, patriarch Jacob in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible has in a dream where he sees a ladder between earth and heaven with angels ascending and descending upon the ladder. Uh, Francis Thompson, who was destitute for much of his life and sleeping rough in the streets of London, imagines or in perhaps indeed records having a sort of theophany experience of that kind near Charing Cross. Um, and so you can see him writing, when so sad thou canst not sadder cry, so when you've reached rock bottom, as it were, and upon thy so sore loss shall shine the traffic of Jacob's ladder pitched between, betwixt heaven and Charing Cross. Yea, in the night my soul, my daughter, cry, clinging to heaven by the hems, and lo, Christ walking on the water, not of Gennesareth, but Thames. Gennesareth, another name for the Sea of Galilee, so the place where Jesus was witnessed by, recorded as having walked on the water by his first disciples. So um, this imagination of the city is a place where theophany might happen. That's to say the, the sudden and unexpected revelation of God's presence in the heart of the city. Again, that changes the way we relate to it. This is... A, an environment in which something, uh, in which surprising and shocking and maybe enchanted or holy things might happen, as well as simply a lot of real estate that you can buy and sell. And there are ways in which the buildings of London encode this, as it were, openness to the transcendent, if you want to call it that, this possibility of uh, surprise, of theophany. Not least a place we, if we watched Her Majesty the Queen's funeral, we'll all have seen very recently, this extraordinary sanctuary area in front of the high altar at Westminster Abbey um, called the Cosmati Pavement. That, um, uh, the pavement is, is a priceless mosaic, if you like, um, done in a very specific style known as Cosmati, um, in which precious stone from of all different colours and from many different parts of the world are embedded in these beautiful patterns. This is the site of the coronation, as well as the site of the Christian Eucharist or Holy Communion or Mass. Um, and it's before this pavement that the Queen's coffin was laid during the funeral. And the, the stones themselves have been imported from places like Rome. Um, and so they encode, as it like, through them the very materials that they're made of. They encode a connection with holy cities elsewhere in the world. London, as it were, claiming to be a new Rome by literally bringing precious stones that had been previously used in ancient temples in Rome and making them part of this new temple in the heart of London. London, in other words, is embedding materially a sense of outward-facing connection with sacred cities elsewhere in the world, channeling, if you like, through matter, through stone in this case, channeling a sort of invisible energy, spiritual energy, um, that gives meaning to the city. Uh, to this place within the city, a place open to, to God in certain key locations. That's a view from above. And actually, it's thought, nobody exactly knows how to interpret 
the design of the Cosmati pavement, but it's thought that in some ways it's a cosmic map. So these are, these are if you like, maps of the heavens, um, which might also in some way encode um, uh, a sort of um, what in technical theological terms would be called an eschatological perspective, which is to say a vision of the ultimate or the end times of how, of how God, as it were, will bring heaven and earth to some final perfection or realization at the end of time. So there's some, there's some very powerful sense in which this design is reminding the people of London of their connection to a much bigger story and a much bigger universe than the immediate day-to-day -day pressures of their urban lives might otherwise allow for. There are other examples in London's history of building churches, often circular churches, that recalled uh, the temple in Jerusalem. So we've, we've heard about the connection with Rome in the Cosmati pavement, but many of the early religious buildings in London consciously made a connection with Jerusalem, another and perhaps even more holy city in the Christian imagination. So the church of St. John in Clerkenwell has, you can see at the left-hand end, this round structure, which was a deliberate architectural echo of the temple in Jerusalem, the most holy building for the Jews of Jesus' time, echoed again in the great Christian basilica in Jerusalem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which was built on what was believed to be the site of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, again using this round architecture. Uh, that's St. John at Clerkenwell now. You, can, you can't see the full... Uh, round effect, the, the architecture, the, the building doesn't exist in the way it would have existed in, the, in medieval times. But you can see this example still, just along the road, uh, Temple Church, um, which serves the Inns of Court, the Inner and Middle Temple. And this is very deliberately built, again, by the Knights Templar, who are a religious order of knights under vows, a bit like monk, monk knights. Um, who had a special sense of connection with Jerusalem um, and, a, and a particular responsibility for preserving uh, sacred sites in the Holy Land. And wherever they had uh, their own religious houses around Europe, they built these round churches to evoke the temple. So, London, again, London constantly reminding its citizens of their part in a bigger world and a bigger story. That's the inside of the temple church and you can see the circularity of the dome from within. Very easy to visit. It's only about five minutes from here. Do go and have a look. And then in later church, post-Reformation uh, churches in London, again, echoes constantly of holy sites elsewhere. So uh, this is the church of St. Mary Woolnoth, built by the wonderful architect Nicholas Hawksmoor, um, a pupil of Christopher Wren in the 17th century. And... He has, uh, in the interior of St. Mary Woolnoth, he's deliberately evoked the temple at Jerusalem again by, um, by using these, what are a bit like sort of twirly barley sugar columns. I don't know if you can quite see them, but on either side, the chandelier is a bit too much in the way, but beyond that, the reredos, which is the wooden structure behind the altar, has two columns on either side, and they're this sort of twirly barley sugar effect. Those are known as Solomonic columns, and they're a direct um, visual evocation of what were believed to be the columns in the Temple of Solomon, the first Jewish temple built by King Solomon in Jerusalem. So again, this is saying that right in the heart of the city of London, 
just outside what's now Bank Tube Station, the very heart of the commercial capital, there is London's own sort of temple. It too is, as it were, is, is also Jerusalem. And the Ten Commandments there are framed by the two columns, just as the Ark of the Covenant in the temple at Jerusalem would have contained the tablets of the law on which Moses was said to have written the God-given instructions from God on Mount Sinai. So a very strong visual evocation of the holiness of London. And this is an example of ground being shared um, uh, even in the heart of the most intensely commercial part of London. This is a little, little area of land behind the Church of St. Ethelburgers, which is on Bishopsgate in London, just along from Liverpool Street Station. Uh, St. Ethelburgers was severely damaged by an IRA bomb uh, back in the time of the Troubles. Um, and uh, the church eventually was rebuilt as a centre for community reconciliation and peace. Um, but there was this little patch of land at the back they didn't really know what to do with until probably about 20 years ago now, um, they found funding to set up a Bedouin tent, a real, I mean, authentically made, all, in all, with all the right materials in all the right ways, a Bedouin tent in this little piece of land at the back. And this is used, you can, of course, hire it for weddings, and you can hire it to, you know, to, to uh, propose <laughs> uh, to you know, somebody that you want to marry, and all kinds of things. It's become a bit commercialised, but you can also, it's also used for... Um, uh, for meetings of people of different religious backgrounds and faiths to, uh, um, to kind of create new connections across religious difference um, to reconcile and to make peace. And the word peace is uh, placed in each of the windows around the tent in different sacred languages. Um, so again, this is a place you might like to drop into and visit if you're passing near Liverpool Street Station. It's a piece of land very deliberately and consciously trying to do something a bit different with, uh, with the real estate. That's the interior there. Um, places of ingress and egress. London. So I've talked a bit about how these sacred sites uh, are ways in which London has reminded itself of a connection to bigger stories, to worldwide networks of other places, Rome, Jerusalem, and so on. And there's a sense in which that goes well beyond religion. So the sense of the city as porous or perforated, of having multiple entry and exit points, some of them mystical or magical or enchanted, is, is something you can even trace in the, in the legacy of, for example, children's stories, not only Harry Potter and Platform 9 and 3 quarters and Diagon Alley, of course, all of which are sort of present somehow just below the surface of what we see around us, um, but in perhaps some of the earlier stories that we might have read, um, Mary Poppins, that you know, someone can float in hanging from an umbrella and bring, and bring magical transformation to the heart of the city. It's, to return to more religious examples, it's also a place of pilgrimage outwards. So Chaucer's Canterbury pilgrims gathered at the Tabard Inn on the south bank of London in order to travel outwards. And in doing that, in making their pilgrimage to Canterbury, they were, they were materially, through their bodies, connecting the city to, um, to other sacred sites, um, places, of pil places, of, um, places where significant shrines were centred. So London, as were, opens outwards, um, but also sucks inwards. And the dark, the dark counterpoint, if you like, to Chaucer's 
vision of pilgrimage outwards is T.S. Eliot's vision of London in the wasteland. Um, some of you may know it, where he describes the way that the city sucks people in, um, again, because of its rapacious commercial interests. Um, he describes seeing the crowds crossing London Bridge, so many, I had not realized death had undone so many, into this unreal city. So there's, there's a sort of, as it were, um, a sort of uh, the shadow side of pilgrimage, a sort of inverted, perverted pilgrimage in T.S. Eliot's vision, where the city sucks in and destroys the lives of those who live here. But that sense of opening out or shutting in is something that I think you should keep in mind as you go on to explore some of the spaces, the buildings and the artworks that you're going to be looking at in the course of this term. My colleague uh, here at King's, sadly no longer here, but Erin uh, Rosen, um, initiated a fantastic project in 2016, which began here at King's in the chapel on the Strand campus, uh, which was a new experiment in Stations of the Cross. The Stations of the Cross are a traditional religious devotion in Christianity, which is usually pursued in the season of Lent. So it's a penitential season of preparation in the run-up to Easter every year of 40 days. Um, and one of the things that for many, many centuries Christians have done in that period is to recall Christ's progress towards the cross from his trial to his crucifixion, stopping at 14 points to meditate on the stages of his journey, including, for example, falling under the weight of the cross, having his face wiped by uh, women at the, at the side of the street as he, as, he, as he carries the cross, and so on, a whole series of 14 stations. And what Aaron did... Um, was to make the whole of London a sort of, again, a sort of Jerusalem by encouraging people with the help of an app that we devised, and you can still download for free if you want to. So if you want to see what, what it might have been like to do these stations in 2016, go, go online, download the Alight app, and stop at 14 different locations around the city. Some of them were inside religious buildings. Some of them were out in public spaces like Parliament Square, uh, and some of them were in art galleries. But each of them was connected with one of the traditional stations. And what it did, um, with the help of kind of cutting-edge technology, was recreate a very ancient sense that the city is a place where of pilgrimage. And a, again, the porosity, the permeability of different spaces to each other was literally... Um, experienced by those who followed the stations because they were moving in and out of buildings, in and out of public spaces, and between sacred and secular buildings, so churches and, for example, and art galleries, as though the boundaries were not fixed or absolute. And one of the things that particularly appealed to me about the way that Aaron did it was that very, there's the King's Chapel, which is where the first one was, is that actually a lot of the most reli obviously religious works of art were in the secular spaces. For example, in the National Gallery, uh, as in this case... Sorry, this is the Wallace Collection, um, or the National Gallery. These were the most obviously religious works, and it was the churches that had the most contemporary works, like this uh, by Roland Bierman, um, which was made out of uh, oil drums painted different shades of red and a, and a sort of cross 
made out of motorway crash barriers. And if you want to find out more about what, what he was doing with that work, again, go on the Alight app and listen to the audio track about it. But um, it seemed to me really interesting that the contemporary artworks were often in the religious spaces, and the religious, the obviously religious artworks were in the, in the museums and galleries, again, suggesting that there needs to be a, a sort of loosening of the hard boundaries that we might draw between the spaces that we think of as religious and the spaces that we think of as art spaces. That was one of them, of course, in St. Paul's Cathedral, and I, I expect you'll hear more about that, Bill Viola's uh, Martyrs, when you hear from Paula Gooder later in the semester, who's coming to talk about works in St. Paul's Cathedral. But that's been used, interestingly, as a sort of altarpiece, uh, as well as being a, a work of video art. Now, a couple of, and that's in Temple Church again, that's figure in a sleeping bag on the floor is an artwork. Um, this was the final station, the entombment. And next to those effigies that mark the tombs of ancient Knights Templar, the, artist, uh, the Jewish artist Lenny Dotan uh, put uh, what looked like a figure of a homeless person sleeping rough, but sleeping uh, on the floor of the church. Um, and perhaps as a reminder, if you like, of what the church's duties of care are, uh, or what other people might need to notice better as they look around them at the visual landscape of the city. And it was very interesting to hear accounts of how different visitors to the church responded to this artwork, not knowing it was an artwork. Some immediately went and complained to uh, the people on the door of the church and said, you shouldn't be allowing people to sleep rough here. Um, and others uh, left offerings of food uh, next to the what looked like the sleeping figure. So that was interesting. It, the artwork was actually doing a sort of job of sorting out the sheep from the goats, maybe, if you want to... If you want to follow up that reference, it's Matthew chapter 25. Inasmuch as you did th that to the least of these, you did it to me. Um, very quickly, because I know we're nearly out of time, I want to leave you with a, a few contrasts that came out of a radio program made by Fiona Shaw, probably most recently of Killing Eve fame, um, uh, about the church and its relationship with contemporary art. And she set up a series of contrasts, and I want to offer them to you, partly because I don't agree with them, uh, and because some of the examples I've been showing you already today, and some of the examples that you'll hear about in the weeks to come, don't actually sustain these contrasts. They, they, they cross-cut them, they complexify them. She says that religious art is eternal, or slower, whereas contemporary art is constantly updating. I mean, there are, there are nuggets of truth here, but it doesn't actually do full justice. To, to what I think is the case. That religious art is sincere, whereas modern and contemporary art is ironic or transgressive. Religious art you might call cultic, perhaps therefore it belongs in spaces of worship and is the focus sometimes of worship, whereas contemporary art is based around the, the dynamics of the exhibition space and often moves on and is temporary. That religious art is about recognition and contemporary art about encounter. Um, we'll skip modern contemporary, that's complex. Um, and I might add, to try and summarise some of what she seemed to be getting at, that sacred art you might describe as plenitudinous, so somehow you can, keep, you can keep getting more out of it the more you look, whereas a lot of contemporary art seems more exploratory. You, you, you explore it, but then maybe move on. Um, I think there's a place for both. 
and I think churches have proved, and other religious buildings in London, have proved this to be the case by hosting different sorts of work and showing how they can do different sorts of thing, some of which are indeed plenitudinous, cultic, reward, long contemplation, perhaps will be there for centuries, and others which are more like interventions, but both have a place within sacred spaces, and both, if you like, can create this sense of connection, of porosity, of opening the city outwards or drawing things into it from beyond it that make it a much more interesting place. So the first I want to show you before I finish is Shirazei Hushiari's East Window. Fantastically successful work of art, I think, uh, in the east of St. Martin in the Fields, replacing a very boring blue cross that was there before. And what Hushiari has done, and she's not a Christian, she's, I think, possibly from a Zoroastrian background, is nevertheless, in very abstract form, echo a sort of cruciform shape. There's a sort of cross in the way that the leaded lines of the window bunch both across on a horizontal and in a vertical around this womb-like space in which the, the mystery of the divine is not... There's no attempt to represent the mystery of the divine, but there's a sense of both fullness and emptiness there, which I think powerfully speaks to the long Jewish history of not naming God and not representing God. And if you look in the moulding in the, in the archway above the window, you can see that she's echoed almost the exact same oval shape that's already there in the moulding in which the unspeakable name of God in Hebrew, the four letters of the so-called tetragrammaton, which signals the divine name but doesn't utter it, is placed. So she's picking up very sensitively on that. This is the kind of work that I think is plenitudinous. It rewards repeated long contemplation. Something like Mark Wallinger's Eke Homo, which was initially displayed in the year 2000 in Trafalgar Square on the 4th Plinth, later found a, had a second outing to the west end of St Paul's Cathedral. And that's a very different sort of work, but doing something, I think, really important as well. On the boundary between the busy outer world of the city and the, and the inner world of the space of worship that's, that's within, and in a way challenging the cathedral to think about whether it as an institutional centre of power might frame this vulnerable, naked, nearly naked human being, the figure of Christ, um, in the way that Pilate's palace did when Pontius Pilate condemned him to death. The, the power interests of a major institution uh, are challenged by this vulnerable figure. But it also he represents a challenge to those who pass by to think about what the church stands for and what might be within those doors. It's a work that's on a threshold and that might invite you across that threshold if you so choose. And a final example, also using the exterior of a religious building, Martin Ferrell's The Question Mark Inside, in which he, recognising the fact that people project all kinds of things onto religious sites, especially iconic ones like St Paul's, he literally projected what people thought when they looked at the cathedral onto the cathedral. So he went around asking many, many people, visitors, uh, citizens of London, what the cathedral made them think of, and then he, he took lots of those and literally projected them onto the dome and onto the west front and in some spaces within it as well. And a fascinating variety of things uh, ended up being plastered, you know, in light on the exterior of the cathedral. I particularly like organised religion makes me uneasy. 
Um, I've, I think I've run out of time, so I'm going to stop there. But, but I, I think the final thing I want to say, and that I hope makes sense of the whole variety of things I've shown you, is that I think that both art and religion and religious spaces have the potential at their best to help the city be more porous. And sometimes they can do it together, and sometimes they do do it together really well. Um, opening, opening perspectives, opening pathways beyond the city and um, giving us uh, ways to live in it that are less confined to the narrow and self-interested or commercially interested uh, uh, powers that uh, are also trying to get their hold on every little nook and cranny of it. So hold those thoughts with you, and I really hope you enjoy the rest of the semester. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.